Welcome again to the Milt Rosenberg podcast. Milt Rosenberg speaking, of course. And shortly you'll hear the voice of my very special guest, Scott Appleby. Scott is a former colleague from the University of Chicago. But for over 20 years, he's been um, a little bit to the east. That is in South Bend, Indiana, where he is a very important person at the University of Notre Dame. Professor of History there, recently appointed uh, as the head of a new uh, school of global affairs, the Keough School of Global Affairs, of which he is the dean. So, good evening, dean. Hello, Milt. Good to talk to you. And what I want to talk about is murder. Murder most foul, as in the best it is. But Mm -hmm. this most foul, strange, and unnatural. You recognize I'm quoting from the ghost of Hamlet's father. And we are these days looking at murder most uh, foul, strange, and unnatural, which is dispensed in some part in the name of or justified by religious precepts and justified by the true faith as against all false and demonic faiths. Is that an overstatement of what we are facing now in the Middle East from ISIS or ISIL, what we have faced from the predecessor and still continuing organization, namely Al-Qaeda, and from, in general, militant jihadist Islam? I think it's not an overstatement. Historians uh, are very wary of saying that something is unique, and I would not claim at all that religious violence or a great deal of the violence perpetrated in the name of Islam is in any way unique or unprecedented. What is striking, I should say, is the type of violence being uh, condoned and and perpetrated by ISIS, ISIL, uh, which not only goes out of its way to scandalize, but in the depth of its brutality uh, and its cruelty, um, one would one would uh, one would search far and wide, certainly over the last two hundred years, to find this type of violence being perpetrated um, by any kind of religious group, Islamic or otherwise. There's a there's a particularly callous, brutal, and shocking element. Al Qaeda. Uh, which is its contemporary, but also its predecessor as, as an Islamic terrorist extremist organization, certainly wanted to um, uh, unload what we'd call demonstration effect and to show the world that a small band of true believers could um, could create havoc in the U.S. through the 9-11 bombings and through other um, dramatic incidents of violence. But ISIL is, uh, seems to be, have taken al-Qaeda's methods themselves to an extreme by uh, the graphic beheadings, the torture, and now then the, the burning alive of the Jordanian pilot. And the burying alive of yet others, including supposedly children. But yes. um, one question that comes to mind from merely a military cogitating point of view, uh, is this does the, does this sort of vile, foul, and unnatural, uh, unbearable murder, does it flow from ideology and from theology and from deep uh, rage, or is it rather intended uh, to be instrumental, to be a way of dissuading others from fighting back? Uh, we know that lots of 
of people in Iraq in uniform have kind of thrown their uniforms away and run away uh, because of what they might fear. I wonder how many brave young men now are ready in the Jordanian Royal Air Force to get in a plane and go and uh, bomb over uh, ISIL territory. It could very much be a negative incentive designed to be a negative incentive. Yes. You know, is it ideological or instrumental, both and? The lines here blur in this sense. Uh, are people recruited to ISIL, to groups to ISIS, um, because they believe that it is time for Islam to stand up and to, and to defend itself against uh, what is understood to be decades of emasculation and violence on the part of the West? Yes, there's an ideological pull there. Is there also, in the level of brutality and violence, an instrumental effect? Don't mess with us. We are serious. We have the West uh, confused and confounded as to what to do both. And in fact, they reinforce one another. The fact that um, we have got the West on the run, so to speak, because we are taking no prisoners and we're willing to do whatever is necessary to defend uh, the righteousness of the Islamic people and of God shows that our beliefs and our ideology are true. And is there, along with that, an actual conviction that a worldwide Sharia, a worldwide caliphate can and will be established, uh, whether led by the current ISIL leader al-Baghdadi or some successor of his? Do they really have that, quote, utopian vision uh, in mind and in heart? I think they do. Um, one of the themes uh, in our conversation this evening, Milt, will be what's different in, in the last 20 years since the project we worked on at the University of Chicago on fundamentalism. So what's different? In a word, what's different is globalization, including not only what we might have called 25 years ago the delusion on the part of some of these groups that they would have a global network and a global caliphate, uh, but now um, the what they perceive to be and may well be the means of establishing some form of a transnational governance of Islam, this seems to be in their minds within their reach. I think many others would say this is still delusional, but they they have a particular hybrid model in mind. On one hand, they will talk about the Islamic nation and the the need to establish the Islamic state, uh, ISIL or ISIS, uh, the Islamic state in the Levant, in Iraq and Syria. But what they mean by state is not the nation state in our sense. They mean the Ummah, the worldwide Islamic community. So their kind of nation state is truly global. And that's why you will hear Baghdadi uh, most recently, uh, I have a quote from him here, celebrate Muslims for we give you good news by announcing the expansion of the Islamic State to the lands of Al-Haramain, that is Saudi Arabia and Yemen, to Egypt, Libya, Algeria and beyond. You hear this kind of rhetoric, not just from Baghdadi, but from so many of these new wave of jihadis who are uh, the rhetoric is actually based in a growing uh, extremist network that is increasingly global. So it's not quite as delusional as it might have been 20 years ago. I'm glad you mentioned uh, a few moments ago the Fundamentalism Project. I was, of course, about to uh, bring it up and put it in the context of our present discussion. Um, alcohol kills, they say, and uh, tobacco kills. 
and uh, national, national states kill, and religion kills in human history. Uh, there's been a lot of murder in the name of, and maybe, in fact, not really rationalized by religion, but fostered by religion, urged by religion. Uh, some years ago, you and Martin Marty um, organized a vast and wonderful project. I was not a member of the project, but I knew a lot of people who were, including you and Martin Marty, of course. And we often discussed uh, the works and ways of that project on the air. You had some, how many total, what was the total number of scholars from around the world who worked with you on this? There were about 125. And they were really all students of religion, whether from sociology, history, theology, or what have you. And the yes. look was at all of, not maybe, maybe not all of the conceivable religions, of course not, but the major religions of the world. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, uh, uh, Buddhism. Um, what else came within your view? Sikhism, Sikhism. The, the Sikh movement in India, though yeah. not a global movement, was very much part of the fundamentalist conversation, right. <coughs> along with the religions you mentioned. <coughs> now let us pause for a moment and really clarify what fundamentalism is and what it is not. When they sing in a gospel tune in the South, give me that old-time religion, it's good enough for uh, Silas, or it's good enough for Daddy, and it's good enough for me. Is that... Uh, the going back to the old-time religion or to a modern conceptualization of what the old-time religion might have been in its simplicity, its purity, and its uh, rigorous demands. Is that what fundamentalism means or should mean, basically? Not at all. They would like you to think that's what it means. But the fundamentalist, uh, which is a phenomenon really that that emerges fully in the second half of the 20th century, is not that old-time conservative, revival, orthodox religion. Fundamentalism is the brainchild of um, engineers, software specialists, um, religious scholars who've joined with them who are very modern and who are motivated by religion in a way, but their approach to religion is uh, the approach that an engineer or an architect takes to a blueprint and a toolbox. We rummage around in our tradition and we select those doctrines or elements or symbols that can then be applied to very modern political ends. We feel that this is the only way to defend religion that is increasingly under threat, marginalized, uh, the victim of a conspiracy by secular forces that want to push it off the stage, uh, and it belongs in the center of the stage. Then fundamentalism is always a, defined as a resistance to or a counterattack against forces that want to dismember and minimize and trivialize religion itself. Indeed. It's a reaction against, it's a counterattack. What's interesting in, in it is that it is imitative of the forces it opposes. Well, it uses because modern technology. That's one thing you've stressed use of already. modern technology and also an instrumental mindset more generally that treats not only Stinger missiles and American Airlines planes as fodder for the war, but also sacred text and traditional symbols and teachings. A traditionalist 
a member of the old-time religion, is called upon to take these complicated multivocal scriptures or traditions as a whole that should be respected in its in its complicated entirety. A fundamentalist has no patience for that. The fundamentalist is going to select what is necessary, what is appropriate and instrumental for the job, both in religion and in modern technology. Curiously, that the term Mar- itself Marxism is something very different than the traditionalist. The term fundamentalism itself was coined, I think, basically to make reference to a kind of religious revivalism in the United States uh, in the early uh, 20th century. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. 1920, Curtis Lee Laws, an editor of a, a magazine newspaper called the Baptist Watchman Examiner, said, we are conservative evangelicals who, with a difference. We want to do battle royal to defend the fundamentals of the faith which are under attack. It's not enough to be a conservative or traditional or an evangelical. We have to be fundamentalist. And then there was a a series of tracts called The Fundamentals, uh, published uh, under the auspices of two California oil men, conservative Baptist brothers, that was published at about the same time that began to launch this movement, which was a breakaway from the more traditional mainstream evangelical Protestant movement of the late 19th century. Religion can kill. We have a long history of religious wars and religious persecution and uh, religious slaughter. Uh, And I suppose you could argue that um, almost all of the major religions uh, have some such guilt on their hands. Um, I would like to think Judaism doesn't, uh, my religion. Uh, But I remember Dr. Baruch Goldstein, was that his name? who yes, went indeed. into uh, uh, that location in Hebron, and uh, I guess he went into a mosque and killed over yes. 20 people. Uh, went, yes. He went quite mad. Um, what is the history of murder in the name of religion? Uh, what's the overview from the beginning of known uh, history to the present? If most of our major wars are fought not for religious purposes, well, I'm confusing myself even as I say that. I'm thinking of the Greeks. They weren't fighting religious wars. They were fighting state wars to defend or to put off uh, threats to uh, your own state. Athens worried about Sparta, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do we find the first re- war of religion? Do we have to wait for the Crusades, or do we look rather at the spread of Islam itself? Uh, the wars of religion can go back... Um uh, almost as long as human history, depending on how you define what constitutes religion, what constitutes a war. There's some theorists who claim that religion does not get implicated as such in in wars until we have the rise of the modern nation state. But I don't think that claim ha- uh, it really uh, really survives scrutiny. Well, is it fair to say as and this is a, a cliche in historical accounts that Islam was, quote, spread by the sword. That's not, I mean, it may be a cliche, but it's true. Islam is a conquering religion. And uh, once uh, once Christianity, my own religion, um, became uh, core to the Roman Empire in the fourth century, it also was immediately engaged in imperial design and in bloodshed and in 
uh, institutions like the Spanish Inquisition and then eventually the Crusades. So both Christianity and Islam have a lot of blood on their hands. You remind me of the president of the United States who just a few days before we are uh, taping this conversation uh, said it's time for us to get off our high horse uh, about uh, what uh, uh, al-Qaeda is doing and what uh, uh, ISIL is doing and uh, we should remember the Crusades. He seems to be saying we're all equally guilty. You have to give him credit, I think, for being courageous in saying that. Um, that's exactly right. And the fact that uh, in his, his two final years, he's speaking his mind more frankly is really remarkable. You can imagine how incendiary a comment like that would be coming from a president who's still suspected by some loony minority of our fellow citizens of being a Muslim himself. Uh, and, and yet that is exactly Well, I do, as a member of my religion, or just as uh, who I am, uh, find him extremely insensitive to uh, the long and burdensome history of Jews as victims, including his comment about uh, the murders in the um, in the kosher store in Paris, where uh, these uh, fellows went in there and uh, randomly shot a few people, uh, without noting that it was, of course, a Jewish market, and it was yes. uh, f- Friday night, the Sabbath, or just before the Sabbath, and they were there to kill Jews and succeeded yes. in doing so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has his blind spots as well, as do we all. But this, the sad truth of this is that it's it's very difficult to find a major religion that is not guilty of in some way legitimizing or fostering or being complicit in or silent in the face of. Well, in the modern world, are we all equally guilty? And if so, is, uh, is Islam uh, more equal than the others? Well, in the modern world, in the 20th century, uh, having, having just set this historical context where I, I think we've been suitably even-handed, we still must say that today in the world, for various historical reasons, Islam is the case that overwhelms in the, in, in the, in the situation of religious violence. Islam is in the middle of a spasm of internal warfare that has been uh, unfolding now really since the early 20th century, one would say with the rise in the Sunni world of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in the 1920s and in Pakistan, what became Pakistan in South Asia with uh, a theorist named Maududi of, uh, of what was called uh, religion as an encompassing social reality that should shape every, ast- every modern institution. These notions go back to the early 20th century, and since that time, for almost a century now, Islam has been gripped by an internal conflict over the meaning of jihad. What does it mean? What does it require? Does it require violence? Does it require violence against not only non-Muslims, but against fellow Muslims, um, even those within our own uh, neighborhood, even Sunni against Sunni violence? And uh, one of the major architects of this uh, was um, uh, a fellow named Syed Qutb, an an Egyptian, who one might say that his manifesto was in the back pocket of Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And that manifesto said that things have become so confused in the Islamic world in the 20th century. We are so much under the impress of Western colonialism that uh, Muslims don't even know that they are being West toxicated, intoxicated by the West and yes. poisoned by the West. As he and felt had been, we have to suspect one another. As he felt had been done to him when he was, for a year, a uh, 
visiting student, I guess, at Sub College in Colorado, and was yes. uh, overwhelmed with rage and Lord knows what other passions as he saw young coeds cavorting around in shorts. <laughs> he yes. literally writes about that. But yes. one thing well worth noting at this very point in our conversation is that within uh, modern uh, religious murder as practiced by some devotees of the pure and true and, uh, and ultimately uh, significant form of Islam, uh, and they define that as uh, Wahhabist uh, fundamentalism uh, of the uh, Sunni variety within that group, and that's those are the people who uh, all compose, or that's the religion that is rapidly acquired by all those who compose the troops, uh, and for that matter, the command structures of Al Qaeda, and now of uh, uh, the of ISIL, and so on. Um, that one basic precept. For all of them, it seems to be that equally irreligious and equally worthy of ultimate destruction are that one quarter of the total, uh, the, the total Muslim population of the world who are Shiite. Right. Shiitism or Shiism is seen as essentially um, profoundly profligate and ultimately profoundly um, uh, suspicious and evil. Yes, and the the feeling is mutual. The Shia uh, don't have many warm feelings for the Sunnis as well. Yes, it's it's a very. But ISIL has now been killing Shia. Um, Shia haven't yet had the opportunity to grab batches of uh, Sunni and kill them, or have they? Yes. Yeah. No, not in ISIL. Uh, much of what's going on in Iraq is Sunni reprisals against Shia come to power to be sure. under American auspices. All, the, all, those market, all those market bombings and so on. Yes. And for that matter, the bombing of many uh, particular religious locations. Indeed, yes. But, but again, both sides... Um, the Sunnis have more blood on their hands, Shia blood on their hands, by dent of what you've referred to already. They outnumber the Shia, they are more pervasive, and they've had more occasion historically to persecute the Shia. I think there's no one would argue that. Um, but this is not to say that the Shia haven't uh, thirsted for revenge and taken it when, when they've had the, the relatively rare opportunities they've had to do so. Uh, I thought I heard um, resonances with uh, the thought and the analysis of another great scholar who, whom we have not yet mentioned in something you said earlier. I have in mind Bernard Lewis, uh, yes. who really asks, uh, is in fact the title of one of his books, What Went Wrong? What Went Wrong Within the House of Islam? Yes. Yes. Um, of course, Bernard Lewis is not a fan of, of many of the uh, scholars who write about Islam, but he was such an erudite scholar and had in his own way uh, a kind of respect for, deep respect for, Islamic civilization. And uh, he particularly came up as an expert in Turkey and his, uh, Turkish Islam. That uh, he, his penetrating analysis of the situation um, it was both controversial and also backed by very fine scholarship. And, and that was the question for him. What's gone wrong? It, it was kind of a backhanded compliment, in a way, to contemporary Islam. In other words, his thesis was not 
as as you will hear today on some news outlets and some pundits and some scholars, was not Islamist flawed from within. It's it, it's not capable of the great uh, uh, of great uh, contributions to civilization. Lewis knew better. He knew that Islam had a remarkable history in what the West would call the medieval period um, uh, in contributing in algebra and math and civilization uh, just extraordinarily. And the question is, what happened that not only turned Islam violent in the way we understand it now, but how did Islam as a religion become ignorant, we might say? What what set it off course from being a conversation partner among the great civilizations um, in in the world? What is his answer? The answer, I mean, uh, he, he did a very very controversial article that summed up his answer called The Roots of Muslim Rage. And uh, partly he he blamed uh, the, one of the usual suspects, of course, is colonialism and Western imperialism. But he actually pointed the finger at the failure of nerve and of integrity on the part of Islamic leaders, both political and religious. And that analysis, ironically, one might think, since since uh, many Muslim commentators themselves are not fond of Lewis or his legacy, but they would agree because they've picked up they've picked up on the analysis that says what happened is that our our leadership, rather than confront Western colonialism, rather than uh, match it uh, invention for invention, capitulated, compromised, and led us into down a dark valley of, um, of ignorance and, and, and poor self-regard. And so Lewis's analysis is ultimately a failure of Islamic leadership and, and the creeping corruption that they were not, that the, um, the independence of Islam and the reliance on the religious, the great tradition itself uh, was overcome by greed, corruption, lack of nerve, um, and and to the extent that that analysis is picked up by other people, including by the al-Qaeda's of the world, of all people, uh, they they say our response, therefore, now is to uh, to hit back with triple the force. And to uh, one of the interesting things, when Osama bin Laden appeared in the cave in October of uh, 2001, October 7th, the same day President Bush addressed the world, bin Laden did from the cave. And one of the words he used uh, frequently in that address, bin Laden, was emasculation. We've been emasculated because there's a, a deep gender dynamic in all of this. And we have now for over a century, uh, bin Laden said, he pointed actually to the 1920s, to the abolishment of the caliphate uh, in Turkey. Uh, and uh, by Ataturk, the secular leader who came to power in the 1920s after the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Bin Laden said it has been, at the time, 80 years, if you do the math, 80 years we have been emasculated, we've been weakened, we've been kicked around. Uh, And his critique was precisely, Bin Laden's, of Muslim clerics, of sheikhs, of religious leaders, of the head of al-Azhar, the once great and still great, 
Islamic Institution of Education in Cairo. Bin Laden was not alone in this analysis. Syed Qutb had had, uh, given a similar analysis earlier. But it was that we have failed, and therefore you need a businessman, an engineer, uh, a non-cleric like Bin Laden himself to come to the rescue and to restore our manhood, essentially. A very basic question that haunts uh, the present time is the extent of this anti-Western, fundamentalist-based Islamic revivalism uh, in its full rage against the West, the extent to which that is characteristic of Islamic communities of the world over. Obviously, most um, members of, uh, most Muslims are not killers and aren't out there trying to kill. But is, are there, in fact, uh, ripples or waves of resonant approval uh, that are held and are experienced in New York, in Dearborn, Michigan, in London, uh, and wherever, when uh, something like nine, uh, something like nine eleven happens, or when uh, way back, uh, even before that, the uh, barracks of Marines in Be- American Mar- Marines in Beirut uh, are blown up and over two hundred are killed. Uh, does the Islamic world secretly sort of approve? Because lots of people uh, argue if they didn't, they would really protest, they would really act up, they would really uh, mourn and condemn uh, what the ways in which their religion is being misused and misapplied and uh, used, in fact, to justify murder most foul and unnatural. But they don't really do it. You know that line of argument. Is it true they don't really do it? And if, the, and if it's not true, why don't we know more about uh, a resistance and a rejection from within Islam itself? This is such an important and complicated and nuanced question. We begin by saying this many, many Islamic leaders have condemned the terrorism and the violence. Um, and the, the mainstream of Islam in this country and beyond are embarrassed by it, shamed by it. Why don't we know that? It is reported. I pay attention to the Western press, but it's not nearly reported as frequently as it's reported um, elsewhere around the world. Because the narrative that controls much of our Western media does not allow for the nuance that would provide the whole story, which is, um, yes, there are pockets of sympathy uh, for what is perceived by some Muslims as getting our just desserts. Uh, You know, again, bin Laden and his rhetoric about 9-11 said, uh, well, when we attack, we're inhumane, but when you starve our children with a boycott in Iraq or you uh, have shock and awe, that's anachronistic. He didn't know that term at the time. But the, the point being, when when the West and uh, uh, its policies, inadvertently or not, leads to the death of Muslims, no one worries about that, etc. So would there be sympathy for the perception that Muslims have been the victims of social injustice around the world? Um, yes, there's sympathy among Muslims for that. But um, But is there sympathy for anything ISIS is doing? No. Is there sympathy for al-Qaeda or 9-11? Wide, any kind of widespread sympathy? I think it would. it's, it's just a calumny to suggest so. You know, on the very day that we're recording this, there's been a report issued that some 20,000 Westerners uh, have gone into the ranks of ISIS, ISIL, 
um, and uh, about 150 of them are Americans. Now, actually, what isn't specified in those stories is that many such people are of um, Islamic and of Arabic background, uh, as one would tell by their names, but, say, are born in uh, in uh, uh, London or born in New York or Detroit or what have you. Still, uh, don't we have evidence of successful recruiting into that ultimately militant, ultimately murderous form of Islamic fundamentalism. Don't we have proof of that um, in uh, those very numbers? Yes, indeed. But let me say one thing about that for the larger point. I'll get back to the specifics in a second. Uh, There were well over 200,000 Croatian Catholics who were involved in in the name of of Catholicism in the Bosnian War were involved in the murder and the rape of thousands of um, Serbs and of Bosnians. Interestingly, now, just as their just as their political organization uh, during World War II, the Ustashi, Ustashi were very yes, much involved indeed. in the uh, yes. Holocaust. Now, does that mean that I, as a Catholic, and the other one point? Four billion Catholics, or whatever the number is these days, 1.2 billion around the world, should uh, be made to feel that they're complicit with the violence in Croatia? I think not. And are there numbers of young people who are being recruited in numbers that trouble all of us, the kind of numbers you just you just cited? Of course. But if you're asking about Muslims worldwide, uh, the, the 1.4 billion Muslims in the world, now, if you say 1% of them, 1% of them are sympathetic to ISIS, well, that's a significant number of people. It is 1% indeed. 1% of 1.4 billion. But that's 1%. So we have to be very careful and ask, why is it that 1% or 2 or 3% of uh, Muslims around the world are being recruited, and increasingly so, in increasing numbers, still minuscule in proportion to the overall population. Even if but their numbers... Have to ask. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. We still have to ask why that is the case um, and uh, what what kind of failures uh, uh, society, our societies, and Middle Eastern societies, South Asian societies, where are the, the weak spots there? We hear time and time again, it is a cliche, but there's nonetheless truth to it, that many of the people being recruited to al-Qaeda, to ISIS, to other such groups, and I want to say something about uh, the globalization of these movements in just a moment and focus for a moment on a specific case to walk us through it. And this is the case of Boko Haram in Nigeria mm-hmm. that I think will make some points for us. But even in that in that movement, with the recruits are uh, youth who have no future, who have no jobs, who have no employment, who as Muslims cannot marry without employment, who are sexually frustrated, uh, and, and they're in a dead-end situation. So here comes uh, a promise of salvation, a promise of male camaraderie, a promise of a gun and prestige and a little money, or a lot of money, depending on how many drugs and guns and so on they're running. Uh, and, you know, no one's condoning that, but how do we understand it? And and I think the greatest antidote to this is to ask, how do we build up uh, how are, how do societies become more governable? How do they open more doors for alternatives? Because in many of these settings, there are simply no alternatives. 
So that's the question of what to do about it. And, of course, we, we need to return to that. And it's ultimately important. What should Western policy be? And that even involves an examination of um, American present policy towards uh, this great threat to uh, the rest of the world, including threat to the United States. Because one special consideration that must be kept in mind is that, yes, indeed, as you uh, urged earlier, one must remember this is now a globalized world in which everything is shared, including including uh, the technologies of mass destruction. Even if it's only 1% who are active, 1% of the Muslim um, population who are active or potentially active in outfits like ISIL and Al-Qaeda and the many others that could be named Boko Haram and so on. Even if it's only 1%, uh, within that 1%, there may be skills and there may be contacts of the sort that give them access to nuclear or to yeah. chemical um, uh, weapons um, and um, or, for that matter, to uh, disease weapons uh, and uh, might lead to an ultimate great conflagration that can destroy much of the world. Uh, yeah. Most particularly the scenario that one has in mind all the time is a radiation device. It doesn't have to be a bomb dropped from uh, a modern bomber. It can be uh, simply put down on the streets of San Francisco or New York or Chicago and can blow up, um, uh, in essence, uh, the whole area and all the people in it. And, yes, uh, indeed. One doesn't need a standing army of thousands in order to do incredible damage. One can have a small cadre that's well-equipped and knows what they're doing. Yeah. Sadly, it's it's a it's not just a religious terrorist problem, it's a terrorist problem more generally. So, you know, we come to the question, which, um, in fact, is raised in uh, the title of a, a famous pamphlet by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, of all people, uh, simply, What is to be done? Mm-hmm. You know, that that is the big question, and, and there are a number of things that have been suggested. I have to say in advance, none of them seem entirely adequate to me. Here's one that we've worked on at our Peace Institute at Notre Dame that others around this country and in Europe and elsewhere are working on, and, and that is— That's the Kroc Institute, of which you were the uh, director, director until fairly recently when you took on uh, the leadership of the new uh, School of Global Affairs. That's right. Uh, and and what is to be done? What is to be done is to build up the capacity of religions themselves, as odd as that may sound, since we're talking about the problem with religion. But um, the capacity of religious leaders, the vast majority of whom, and religious communities, the majority of whom are not uh, prone to violence. In fact, in fact, our fundamentalism studies show the following. The, the fundamentalist leaders who were, were the most violent leaders who wanted to recruit not only within Islam, but in Sikhism in particular, in Judaism, in Christianity, in Hinduism, who wanted to recruit had a problem. The problem was that when they went to recruit, even among the destitute, even among those who seemed to have no alternative, even among the poor, they did not initially get um, uh, the kind of response they were hoping for by exploiting social and economic conditions. Because they were recruiting initially among the conservative, the orthodox, the devout. And the conservative, the orthodox, and the devout, even if they're not particularly literate, they understand their tradition to be um, 
cautious, to say the least, about taking human life, about revenge, about lethal violence, and to the contrary, to enjoin forgiveness, forbearance. There are different were hospitality in the Jewish tradition. There are various terms for what we would say behavior becoming of the common good and of human virtue. And, and the, so what the fundamentalists had to do, and this was striking to us because it was the case in these very different world religions, disparate doc- doctrines, and doc- but they all developed uh, developed from within their traditions what we called a, a, a Manichaean or a millennial or a uh, apocalyptic strain, because uh, which made the case that we cannot uh, we cannot um, follow the religion as it's taught in our scriptures and our traditions in normal times because these are not normal times. So they would find in the scriptures again this is back to the selectivity of the engineer. They would retrieve, and you can find them in every sacred scripture, what I call emergency clauses. Uh, For example, in the Granth Sahib, the Holy Book of the Sikhs, the living guru, you will find, if you read that, uh, that text, one passage after another enjoining forgiveness and love and forbearance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, even against enemies unto enemies. But there are lines that say, however, however, Here's the clause. If the Sikh religion itself is under mortal threat, or if this is a time of great darkness, a crisis, a turning point, you must take up the sword. And the the Sikh leader in the early 80s, Bendran Wallace, uh, added the motorcycle and the revolver to the insignia of the Sikhs because his analysis was, we are at a moment of crisis and there is an emergency clause. The point of all this is that the mainstream trajectory of teaching and practice in these religions is not extremist, is not violent. And the fundamentalist has to do a little dance uh, and, and, and really distort. And therefore, what we've seen happen over the last 30 years is the recruits now come partly from the kind of conservative who kn- knows the tradition, but increasingly the, the recruits come from the religiously illiterate who may have been raised Islamic or in a Christian family and may have some uh, be conversant to a degree, but are really not studied and practiced. In fact, in fact, they, these the, the the members who, if they have a, a familiarity with their tradition, know it as a concept or as a verse or as an idea, but not as a practice. When you when it is woven into practice into daily life, when uh, engagement with the neighbor is is enjoined by the religion, it becomes very difficult to recruit people into movements whose purpose is violence because the lived reality of the religion is so contrary to that. So what we've tried to do in the Peace Institute and other our colleagues around the world who are working on this is to help foster uh, programs within these religious communities that not only deepen catechesis, if you will, or, or instruction of a sort, but that tie that instruction to the everyday practices of the faith that are time-honored and that are community-building, neighbor-regarding, enemy-loving practices. That, to us, seems to be a way at least to provide 
a resource within religious communities with eyes wide open that are aware that the community is being distorted and that are troubled by the rise of religious violence over the last generation or two. That's one approach. It's a long-term approach, and one of the difficulties is, who am I to uh, to uh, intervene, however well-intentioned, into the internal religious um, communications and interactions of any other religious community other than my own? So we, we face a number of methodological challenges, but the point there is religion is not primarily, empirically, even historically. If you take the long span of history and you, and you read the monographs of religious life uh, that do have episodic violence, there's no question about it. You find that religion in the warp and woof of life is a, is a social, it, it supports society, community, and generally amicable, relation, amicable relationships. And in fact, can, can be strengthened in a way to provide an antidote to uh, those who would distort the religion. But this is where, ironically, bin Laden was correct when he said, our sheikhs have uh, abandoned us, they have betrayed us. Perhaps not in the way he meant, but, but religious education in the Muslim world has let Islam down. In the Catholic world, has let Christianity down, and so on. There have been all kinds of historic reasons for that, but there has been a failure, not so much of catechesis, but of in, engaging in practices that um, that allow religions to to bring to the fore their uh, constructive society bolstering friendship engaging uh, resources. So that's one avenue. There are others, but one is to work with religious communities who will speak out against violence and who, by their practices and their behaviors and their engagement in literal peace building, conflict mediation, development activities provide another face to the religious presence in geopolitics. You know, in all that you've said in the last few minutes, uh, there are 10 different themes I could pick up on. Yes. All of them fascinate me. Let me just free associatively uh, voice a few of them. Uh, first, just as a sidebar, uh, I note that um, uh, one of your interesting public performances um, in um, fairly recent time still, was you lecturing all the bishops of America uh, in a great meeting that they called mm -hmm. to deal with the crisis in the church, particularly the crisis over sexual abuse. And you were the um, first man to speak at that meeting, and there you were lecturing all the bishops in their uh, clerical garb. Uh, so you d do know how to address that your own religion. I'm true, I must say. <laughs> another, another thing that came to mind in the Sikh case, as you were talking about it, uh, really uh, struck me. Actually, in fact, it raises a, a question. Um, uh, Indira Gandhi, as uh, premier of India, was shut down by her own guards, and they were, as far as I remember it, all Sikhs. Uh, yes. uh, yet a third thing that uh, comes to mind, as you talk about the healing, the, com the communal, the uh, stabilizing uh, uh, service of religion to the world. Indeed, we've needed that. All societies uh, have religion. Not all people are religious, but all societies have some sort of religion, uh, whether animist, whether uh, whatever. There are thousands of different religions that have been cataloged, but there's always some sense of the sacred and some way of representing the sacred and <laughs> relating to it. Um, but when we look at the modern world, 
we still find that religion does kill a lot. However, an interesting balance to that is to remember that in that slum of a century, the 20th, uh, mm-hmm. there were over 190 million people killed as a matter, as a policy of state. Uh, yes. The uh, one man who's worked on all of this, Rudolf Rommel, uh, titles his summary book on this uh, on this whole subject in which he treats of genocide and what he calls democide. He titles the book Death by State. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the three states who did the most and the three state leaders who did the most uh, killing of civilians, this is not a matter of soldiers killed in war, were, of course, Nazi Germany, um, led by Hitler, Soviet Russia, led by Stalin, and uh, modern communist China, led by Mao Zedong. Indeed, the greatest murderer of all of them uh, probably is Mao. Um, yes. Um, is is religion a workable antidote to state murder, which is, when it comes to sources of murder, a greater problem even than the most militant, uh, the most ignorant, the most uh, um, angry religion that we can conceive? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the functions of religion that is often overlooked, but when we, when we have a movie like Selma and the remembrance of Martin Luther King Jr. most immediately in our own context is prophecy, the prophetic voice that has the courage to stand up against, in this case, the modern uh, war-making nation-state and say no. Uh, and and that prophetic strain, uh, which of course is uh, comes in the in the Judeo-Christian tradition, right from the heart of Judaism, uh, which is. Um, absolutely vital to um, uh, a functioning, healthy religious community, that it fosters the moral courage in some individuals, at least, necessary to say, none of this is God's will. This is an exploitation that violates uh, human dignity uh, when a nation state goes to war uh, for almost any reason, but if not for every reason. That prophetic uh, contribution is part of um, what I would include in, in what I said earlier about the contributions that religion can make to a fully functioning, healthy society. It, it, and it, it's, the, it's the more dramatic contribution of saying no to violence, no to hunger, no to rape, no to the denigration of women, and so on. And happily, we still do have those prophetic voices in this country and beyond. They don't get the press that uh, that the Al-Qaeda's do, but I wish they, they got more attention because they are still very strong. Is fundamentalism flourishing in the other religions? Clearly we're talking about Islamic fundamentalism, a source of great trouble for Muslims and for the world at the moment. Uh, how is it doing in Christianity, in Judaism, for that matter, uh, in uh, Hinduism uh, and wherever? It's- it's present in all those faiths, but it's not doing nearly as well as it is in Islam, and there are some reasons for this, I think. Um, one of the challenges that Islam faces is that Christianity does not face in every respect, in quite in a pervasive sense as Islam does, is the rule of law is established in many Christian societies. The rule of law is established in societies where um, would be fundamentalists in the Buddhist or Hindu or Christian or Jewish traditions might otherwise become even bigger problems. Well, one hears a good deal about a great jurisprudential tradition in Islam and whole Islamic universities given over to uh, Islamic law. Is that not the case? That is the case, but 
the, the critique from within is that those jurisprudential traditions have been marginalized and that the leaders of the state, uh, the, this is why the caliphate is so important to these radical groups. They want to restore the caliph. Why? Because the caliph, who is both a kind of political and spiritual figure, is supposed to ensure from, from essentially a political perch that the jurisprudential schools and the teaching of Islamic law and the moral framework of Islam is fully intact, the rule of law, if we would say, in Islamic societies. When the caliphate is abolished by Ataturk in the Sunni world, the analysis is, and, and I think one could argue there's cogency in this analysis, the analysis is that this is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the end of Islam able to exercise checks and balances, we might say, on rulers of, uh, of Islamic states who are, uh, who are now increasingly uh, hard to differentiate from any kind of power-hungry, political, worldly ruler. That, that, that those, um, those aspects of Islam that were an attempt to enjoin justice and uh, um, to enjoin the good and repress the evil and so forth, that they have fallen by the wayside. And so Islam is no longer Islam. It's unrecognizable. It's ungovernable. And we have, unfortunately, ruffians and thugs trying to reassert um, what what was once part of the natural Islamic order, that is, a caliphate. Kilford uh, Garrett, the late anthropologist, said something very shrewd about fundamentalism. He said... Um, Fundamentalism happens uh, when a society has passed, crossed a threshold and has gone from a traditional religious society where things are taken for granted, where they are natural, where where the uh, the reinforcement between family and society and law and religious leadership and politics, if not perfectly aligned, at least there is uh, some sense of confirmation across spheres. And then when you pass into the polyglot, pluralistic, often divisive, technological, modern societies, he was writing about Java, uh, in the Islam observed, Garrett's, when he made this observation. When you pa- cross that threshold into deep modernity, modernization. No longer are you held by the faith and by this kind of integrated holistic worldview. You have to hold on to it. And that changes everything. When you have to grasp it, when you have to assert it. And so you have the bizarre phenomenon in the mid and late 20th century unto our present day of rabbis in Israel competing with one another as to which one has the very finest lulav or reed for sukkot, for which one has the closest cut of his of his of his coat, which one is more orthodox than the other? I, I saw in Meisharim, the ultra orthodox neighborhood, years ago, uh, one of my friends who reads the Yiddish, uh, where one said, "Eat its size, it's fundamentalist, it's kosher fundamentalist." The the pa- the plasterboard right next to it is size is a fraud. <laughs> Eat it herbs, it's super kosher, super fundamentalist. The third one right next to it, Abe will show these are both imposters, ultra ultra fundamentalist ultra, ultra, what's happening there? What's happening is an awkward competition for orthodoxy, a kind of culture of regular
regulation and law, not a culture of mimesis, not a culture where you know what's kosher because mom keeps a kosher cushion, kitchen. You know what's kosher because you read a rule book and you outdo the other person. This is an awkward, unnatural, modern condition. And so let's establish a caliphate. Let's impose Islamic law. Well, if you're going to do that by burning pilots and beheading people and having thugs and drug runners establish your Islamic State, there's something clearly wrong. In other words, the, the old order has collapsed, and there's a terrible struggle to recreate it. And the struggle now is so awkward, which is, which is an anodyne term for what we're describing, but it's so unpleasant that it's, they're not getting it right. Uh, and no one has the, the proper formula. That's why we look to, uh, for a moment there, Ganushi in Tunisia, thinking maybe he can get it right. Maybe Indonesia's democracy is going to somehow bring this together. Maybe Malaysia. There's a constant quest in the Islamic world for the right formula that is both quintessentially 21st century modern economically, politically, and so on, but also is able to import into it a kind of unified religious code so hard to observe in a modern, fragmented, individualistic world. So it's a very difficult task um, that, that not only Islam, but Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism is facing. How to live an entire whole encompassing way of life in a modern society which is uh, centrifugal, uh, fragmenting. It, it's a big problem for every religious community. As we come close to exhausting the available time, uh, a great question comes to my mind. It's a question beautifully posed years ago in an article uh, in The New Yorker, which was about Time magazine and about the loose empire. And as a matter of uh, fun or satire, it was written in what was then Time style, in which you had words inverted and strange, strange formations. Uh, and this article ended with a great loose Loosely styled, L-U-C-E-L-Y, mm -hmm. loosely styled last uh, sentence, last question, which was, quote, where it will all end knows God. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I put to you that question, since our topic has been religion and human welfare and human disorder and human murder, um, I put it to you. You're a man of deep religious conviction and associated with a very important religious educational institution in this country, where it will all end, does God know? And do you know? Um, I, I would imagine that God knows. I, I can say with absolute infallibility that I do not know. Um, I, I would say these two things. One, uh, it may not end. I'm not. I'm not uh, it's going to keep going. It's going uh, as a historian. Uh, It'll remain a troubled story from here to infinity. Indeed, it will. And uh, we can count on that. We're the only um, animals who can say that, or, could, or of whom that could be said. Yes, I, I'm, I'm not a, a, a salvation history Christian in, in the sense that might be understood. That is, I'm not so sure I believe that God is bringing history to some kind of fulfillment uh, that we're going to be able to recognize. But I do believe, as a person of faith, that, that the divine, that the Spirit is, uh, is providing pockets of enlightenment and love and forgiveness and awareness, even within the chaos uh, so in the eye of the hurricane, there, there are moments of reconciliation, forgiveness, solidarity, uh, human compassion. And, and that's what I look for 
to be the hidden but very meaningful story of history, where that happens. It's not going to dominate the headlines or even the history books, but I believe it's real. And whatever we can do to carve out a little bit more of the space for those moments of, of peace within the storm, I think that's our duty. Well, Scott, you remain a man of faith, of a highly intelligent faith and a highly uh, articulate faith. And uh, I am delighted that we had the chance to talk about these matters. It rather reminds me of old times when we had you in the studio and we talked about everything uh, that yes, pertained indeed. in one way or another to religion. Religion is an operative force in modernity. That's what we've been talking about tonight. And operative force for the, not only for the good, but of course also for evil. Um, yes. So with that, we close. Scott Appleby, thanks very much for joining us tonight. 